Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy 4 this morning, and we'll read verses 6 through 16 of 1 Timothy 4. Here we're being called to train, exercise ourselves for godliness. Let everyone see your progress, Paul says to Timothy, but that's as an example to all the believers. And then in that context, where our confidence lies as we train for godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16, page 1178. Page 1178 in your pew Bibles. If you put these things about the mystery of godliness, the right way to become godly and the wrong way, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained or nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train, gymnase yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have put our, or we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Brothers and sisters, look at verse 10. It's our text this morning. For to this end, godliness, we toil and strive because we have... Our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is God's word. May he bless us and build us by it today. Beloved Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we read in verse 9 that this is a, or the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, what is the saying that's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? There's five of these trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Sometimes there's a question, is the trustworthy saying what comes before Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Is that the trustworthy saying? Or is it what comes after? 
For to this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God who's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Which one is it? We believe it's the one that comes before. That's what the faithful saying is. Godliness holds value in every way as promise for this life and for the life to come. And what comes in verse 10 is the reason why this saying is trustworthy. For, it's the reason. So what the saying is comes before. The reason this saying is so important is because of what comes after. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God as a savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Of course, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. So it's all God's word. It doesn't matter whether the trustworthy saying comes before or after. It's all trustworthy. We understand that, right? But where's our confidence as we toil and strive in God's gymnasium for godliness, as we exercise our souls to grow, to make progress? Where's our confidence? What is it? First of all, we want to look at why we need this confidence. We often fail in our workout programs. Number two, where we find it. And three, why we're so certain of it. Why we need it. For to this end, look at verse 10, we toil. The word means we work out till we're weary. We tire ourselves out. That's what that word means in the Greek. And strive. In the Greek, it's agonizo. We agonize. It means struggle. To this end, we labor till we're weary. And we struggle. What end? The things talked about from verses 6 through 8. Godliness. Becoming more like Christ. Becoming more patient and kind and self-controlled and courageous. Don't you want that? If you're born again. And the Lord Jesus Christ lives in you by the power of the Spirit. You want godliness. And you grieve when you fall short. When you're not like Christ. When you are impatient, right? We want this. We toil for it. We strive for it. For godliness, Christ-likeness, holiness. We want more peace and less worry, right? We want to be more kind and less harsh, right? And so we seek to grow in godliness by training, by exercising ourselves in the word of Christ, communing with him here, and building up good workout routines, daily personal devotions, the word of God and prayer, daily family worship, Commitment to a Bible study and devoting yourself to it. Commitment to the means of grace. Hearing the preaching of the word on the Lord's day and using the sacraments. That's training yourself to godliness. 
and the confidence that when you rub shoulders with Jesus in the word, the more you have contact with him, commune with him, the more you're gonna grow. It, it can't fail. Paul says to Timothy, let everyone see your progress. Timothy says to the congregation, I want to see everyone's progress. Isn't that what we want? But you know, training in godliness is like any diet and exercise program. They're great fitness builders, right? But they're also great guilt builders. When you stick to your diet and routine with discipline, you feel great, but sneak a few donuts and skip a few workouts and you feel fat and guilty. And the same is true of exercising in God's gymnasium for your soul. When your habits of grace are running smoothly and you're in the word diligently and daily and using the means of grace on the Lord's day faithfully, you feel close to God. You feel strong in the Lord. But our workouts don't always run smoothly, do they? And we can go through times when we lack motivation. As David Mathis writes, Satan likes to attack at dawn. He likes to attack at dawn. When you get up, he likes to attack you to destroy your time, your communion with Jesus in your devotions. He likes to attack you at dawn by the pings of your phone, by feeling too tired, by feeling too busy. Got to get going right away this morning. And suddenly your workout routines start falling apart. And then that becomes Satan's next snare for you. Now you start to put confidence in your workout routines as the reason God loves you and accepts you. Or at least part of the reason of your worthiness before God. God loves me because of my devotional pattern. Because of my spiritual discipline. And if they fall apart or I get weak in them, suddenly God doesn't love me or accept me fully anymore or approve of me because I'm not working out like I should be right now. And if I don't get back to it soon, God's going to start punishing me, me with bad things. So I decide I'm going to work harder in God's gymnasium, work out harder. So I can get back into God's good graces and get out of his bad books. And suddenly your training for godliness becomes anti-Christian, anti-Christ, anti-gospel. It becomes a form of works righteousness. Where you think now God, at least in part, your worthiness before God and God's reason for loving you is how well you're doing in your routine. And because of this reality in God's gymnasium of things not always going smoothly and grieving at the amount of progress you haven't made or where you might be backsliding, we need to know where to find our real confidence. Is it in our workout? Is it in how well we're doing? Or is it somewhere else? Notice what Paul says here, number two, where we find this proper confidence. Where's the proper source of it? For to this end we toil and strive, 
because we have our hopes set on our exercises. No, no, no. We have our hope set on the living God who's the savior of all people. Paul says it in a gospel way. We strive, we toil for godliness because we have set our hope in the living God. It's not the other way around. We don't strive to be godly in order to have hope in God. I'm gonna strive really hard so that I can have hope in the living God. That's anti-gospel confidence. But Paul puts it in the gospel ordering of life. To this end we toil and strive. For this godliness we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God who's the savior of all people. Brothers and sisters, your hope doesn't depend on your level of godliness, okay? Your godliness depends on your hope. It's the other way around. Hope doesn't come from godliness. Godliness comes from hope. When you have your hope set in the living God and you trust him through Jesus Christ that he loves you and that he saves you and that he accepts you, that spurs you on to godliness to want to work harder and brings you grief when you fail. But it's not the other way around. The more godly I become, the more happy God is with me. The higher my approval rating with him becomes. We have to be really careful to put our confidence in the right place. Of course the believer wants to make progress. Because of what God has done for us. He gave his life for us. And because he lives in us by his spirit. And we will make progress in godliness when he lives in us, though it's not always in an even curve upward. But our confidence should never be in our routines and prayers and godliness because our hope is set on the living God. God, on God, his work for us his love for us, his patience with us, his kindness to us, his promises to us, his power for us, his faithfulness to us, and above all, on God's son. Listen to a verse in Psalm 52. Psalm 52, eight and nine. But I, says David, am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I have my hopes set on the steadfast love of God. Then he says in verse nine of Psalm 52, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. I wait for your name. Confidence, we have our hope set in the living God, the Savior. Look at those two names for God. Our confidence is not in our routines, but in God. He is the living God and he's the savior. First, he's the living God. And that word already came up in chapter three, verse 15, that we belong to the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's a common name for God in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The living God. And it's in contrast with all other gods. Because they're dead. 
They're lifeless and they're useless. Other gods can't save you, brothers and sisters. That's why God doesn't want us to have another God. For our protection and for his glory. Other gods cannot carry you when you fall, lift you up. Other gods can't make atonement for you. You make all the money in the world and worship money as a source of your, but your money can't pay for your sin. Your career can't pay for your sin. Other gods cannot change your life. Other gods cannot make you godly. They can't give you strength when you're weak. They can't come to your side when you're lonely. They can't help you when you're tempted. Jeremiah says in chapter 10, verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. The true God, the living God, the everlasting king. The living God, he lives forever and ever and is the fountain of life, the Lavensbrunn. Maybe you've heard of that word. The Lavensbrunn, the fountain of life and strength and joy and grace and peace to those who trust in him. The living God. He's a fountain of never-ending life for you, dear people of God. Whatever you need, you bring it to him and he bubbles out. He pours out life in whatever form of grace you need it. He is the living God. He helps you when you fall. He lifts you out of the pit. He holds you by your right hand. He takes you all the way to glory. And the other term is he is the Savior. We have our hope set on the living God, the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. The living God sent his son to save us from our sins. Chapter two, verse five. There is one God, only one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Savior. There's an infinite gulf between God and sinful man. And God is the Savior who put a bridge, a mediator, a place to bring us back together, to bring us back home to God. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. Put all your sins on him, and in him your sins are nailed to the cross. They're gone, and you bear them no more. He is the Savior. What other God has ever died for sinners. Whatever other God has ever become flesh to take your place under God's wrath in your sin and guilt to make atonement for you, there is none. The Savior who sent his son to live a perfect life for you to cover all your imperfections, Die a perfect death to you to make atonement for all your sins, to pay for all your sins. Rose again to share his righteousness with you and went to heaven to prepare a place there for you and guarantee you a home there with God forever. The Savior. 
Well, as you struggle to become godly brothers and sisters, and as you train for godliness, and as you exercise your soul towards spiritual growth, becoming more like Christ, keep resting in God, not your progress, not how well you're doing, but the living God who is the Savior. Stake your life on his name, the Savior. That's who he is. Look to Jesus for your worthiness. Look to Jesus for your atonement. Look to Jesus for God's perfect love in your life. Look to Jesus for your guarantee of heaven. It's in him. Take him at his word. Trust his name, Savior. You have everything in him that you need for life and godliness, beloved. And when you trust in Jesus, God looks at you as worthy. He looks at you as holy, as godly, and righteous. Because that's who Jesus is. And maybe you see your shortcomings and failures and weaknesses today in your spiritual life and you say, is God really willing to accept a sinner like me at his table? Well, would he call himself the Savior if he didn't want you to come to him? Of course he wouldn't. He means this name. And the name is an invitation. The name is for your confidence. I don't have to rest in me. He's the savior. He's got everything I need. We see thirdly, why we're certain of this. There's a beautiful statement here in verse 10 that gives us so much certainty of God's love for us, dear people of God. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we've set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, sadly, because our minds are dim, this statement offers more controversy, it seems, than comfort, and more arguments than assurance. Does God really save everyone? He's the Savior of all people. Does he save everyone? Well, no, he doesn't. And Paul and the whole Bible recognize this. Many will perish because they do not come to the only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And they expect to find a place in heaven without trusting and following Jesus. Not going to work. The Bible's clear on that. What does it mean then that he's the savior of all people? What does it mean? Well, it means what he says. What it says there. He is the savior of all people. But you have to understand the statement properly and in context. Not meant to be a source of controversy. It is meant to be a source of security. So, savior of all people. When it comes to the way of salvation and the offer of the gospel congregation, God really is the Savior of all people. 
simply means what we read back in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That between the one God and all people, there is only one bridge, one mediator, one way to get out of your sins, one way to come back home to God, one way to receive his love, and that's through Jesus. And that's one way for each and every person that is living or has ever lived. There is no other way. He is the only savior of all people, for all people. And God calls all men everywhere to repent. Come to a son, Jesus, and be saved, the Bible says. And to receive the salvation that he gives to everyone who believes in Jesus. So that command and that invitation comes from God, the Savior for all people. But the living God is the Savior, especially of those who believe. The word especially means in a different way, in a special way, in a much higher way. He is the Savior of everyone who believes in Jesus. It puts believers in a special category of how God is their Savior. A believer is one who listens to, trusts, and obeys God our Savior. Let's say that there's a very wealthy man who walks the streets and he calls people to come to him in their poverty and he will give them food and clothing and shelter and money. Everyone who comes to me and admits his needs, her needs and poverty, I will help you. But many are too proud to admit their poverty and need. I'm not going to that guy. I'm not going to become a beggar. Well, he is the supplier for all of them, but they won't come to him for supply. But those who do come and admit their need and say, I need your help. He's the supplier of them in a very special way. That's the way it is with our God. When you come to his son, Jesus Christ, then in a special way you enter into a covenant, an eternal bond of fellowship with him. And you enter into his love in a personal way. And you receive personally the forgiveness of all your sins. And you receive justification. He accepts you and declares you righteous. And he surrounds you with his protection and fills you with his spirit to secure you. So that he will never lose anyone of all who come to him. And he will guarantee, has guaranteed you a spot in heaven when he ascended. You have a place reserved there for you, guaranteed. When you believe in him, he becomes your savior in a special way. And that gives you total security. When you come to this God through Jesus Christ, he will never turn you away. And he will never let go of you. And he will forgive you and keep you all the way to the end. Jesus said that. And I will come to take you to myself and that where I am, you may be also. That's what he wants for us. That's what he's going to do for us. Oh, that word especially. He's especially the savior of those who believe. 
That word assures you, dear believer, if you've given up on yourself and trusted in Jesus for your salvation, you are specially chosen, specially loved, specially forgiven, specially protected, specially helped, and specially given an eternal home with God, and nobody can take that away from you. And at the table, he says to you in a special way, this is my body given for you. Your death, your guilt, your judgment, gone. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. Your damnation, your hell, squeezed out of Jesus, taken away from you. Heaven. He is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how far away you are, how far you are in your pathway of godliness. But I can tell you, we each have a long way to go. And we all face those attacks at dawn. And none of us is as far as we could be or should be. But be confident that God loves you because of how perfect Jesus is, how godly Jesus is. And that's enough. That's enough to give you confidence to keep exercising in God's gymnasium and not to be afraid God is going to throw you out because you haven't arrived at perfection yet. Let's trust him for Jesus' sake. Amen.